0: Time for school. Rock School. With your hosts, Dr. Joe Burns. So you played the sack butt? The what about?
1: The sack butt. Okay, I didn't. Know. And Beth West. Agnetha Falskog. Mm. I can't believe you made me say Agnetha Falskog, Jill. Twice. A
0: class is in. It's the Rock School Radio Show here broadcasting from the campus of Southeastern Louisiana University. My name is Joe Burns, and once again in the uh, catbird seat over there. Not Beth West, who are you? Dan McCarthy again. Well, good enough. Thank you very much for sitting in. Nice uh, Beth, to be here. Still on uh, vacation. She is recuperating from working in the library. Tough place over there. That'll do it for you. It really is. They have, uh, you know, the gladiator fights every Absolutely. Friday night. It's tough. So, it is uh, show number 4 of our extended summer show looking at everything that has to do with a concert and looking at either the discussion of it, what it is, giving you the terminology you need to bore the living heck out of people at a concert or at your next cocktail party, because we in the world of uh, academics go to a great deal of con- uh, cocktail parties and, and concerts as well, or looking at the history of whatever happens to be on We actually just stage. bore people a lot. Yeah, that's right. Once you garner <laughs> yeah. a PhD, your whole world is boring people. Now, you wanted to play ecstasy or yes. xtc i never really know is is it is it ecstasy or xtc i say xtc but really i mean it's meant to be ecstasy i, I guess, think so but, yeah. pushing the letters the most so mm-hmm. in order to do that the best way to to talk about it is to talk about the fact that they've quit touring because of uh, it's partridge's stage fright yeah andrew partridge he was their main songwriter
1: although they have other songwriters right. and uh one tour, in fact, Oingo Boingo was opening up for him, and they mm-hmm. were supposed to go on, and it turns out his wife had thrown away his Valium. That's not good. And he just went into a panic attack and couldn't do it, and he was just couldn't perform after that. He stopped performing, and uh, they went into the studio and continued putting out great work, but they just couldn't do the stage thing
0: anymore. See, only the Beatles get to do that. Exactly. No, well, you know, like, ecstasy decent. does not get to do that. So if we're going <laughs> to talk about stage fright, we should probably talk about the stage. Oh, uh, there we go. Sure. Exactly. So let's talk about this. If you're looking at a concert, the last concert you went to now, I don't think they have this at Jazz Fest, but that little sort of tongue thing that sticks out into the yes, audience, yes, yes. Right. you know what I'm talking exactly. about? That has a name. It's called The Thrust. Who knew? Yeah. Bono has to be with his people. Very good. So he is out in there. Most people go to see what's known as either a promenade or an end-on configuration of a stage. Now, a promenade means the audience moves at their leisure around the stage. This right. is when people say, well, I was on the floor. Yes. You're actually on the promenade. Got it. So an end-on is where the audience sits in rows directly in front of the performance, okay. that's when you go to see something. Normally, at like the Beau Revage is sort exactly. of more in the round. Right, they sort of sit in a semicircle in front of the stage. They call that a half moon. Okay, okay, makes sense. And the traverse is where the audience sits on either side of the stage. So those are some things that uh, you can play around with. Half Moon, Promenade, End On, Traverse, and The Thrust going out into the audience. Well, they're now doing a stunt, I think the Rolling Stones are, where they have a circular thing and they put people
1: in the middle. Oh, and walk they, all the way around it. They are in there, surrounded by the stage in the middle.
0: How much does that cost? Oh, a lot. I mean, that's oh, got to oh, be yeah. insane. Oh, so, crazy. when we get back, we'll talk about the arena. And as you're looking down, you know you can see where they're taking care of the sound over here and the lighting okay. over here. That all has names. Again, and, we're going to yep, find out, aren't we? Right, Ecstasy, Miniature Sun, Miniature Sun. That's right. Yes, we'll so play cool. right here. On Continuing on talking about the arena, the place you go to see the actual concert, doesn't necessarily have to be an arena, but for the audience, sitting in a circle or square all the way around the stage generally is called an arena. Mm -hmm. Now, the front of house. That's where they work the sound. You know, you see the the uh, the stage, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then you have those large cables, the snakes going back yep. to that huge audio board, which is getting smaller and smaller. They call that the sound world or the front of house. Got it. Okay. That's where the people sit, and it's really neat to get a. I try to get a seat near that because there's that beautiful blue light that sort mm. of lights it up, and there's the one roadie guy that you think, well, that's the smart one. He's not climbing up the riggings and such. All lighting goes to an area normally off to the left or to the right of the stage, Mm because you have to be close enough to the stage to look up and see where the lighting is falling. That would make sense. They call that the dimmer beach. The dimmer beach. Makes sense. Okay. Now, have you ever been to a place, now the arena has this, where there is a sort of a secondary wall you have all the seats up, and it's sort of a secondary wall that you walk through to get to the floor. Yes, yes, I know. Like a hockey about. rink. Exactly, right. Right. That's yep. called a dasher. It's called the hockey rink. <laughs> well, it, technically, it's called a dasher. All right. Now, the concourses are the areas where you enter into the building. That's also where you go get a soda or something, that kind of thing. Then there are sort of the shortened hallways where you either walk through sliding doors or they have black curtains where you enter into the physical area where the concert's going to take place. Any idea what those things are
1: called? Uh, entrance ways vom's v
0: a h uh, m s o m v o m. It comes from vomitories, <laughs> which is I know I laughed at it too, which is the old Roman word for such an entrance, and it gets nicknamed that way because you sort of vomit the audience into the place. I thought I'm, it was I'm the not kidding
1: access for people to go and vomit when
0: they've uh, <laughs> <that>. yeah. Because <laughs> when I was younger, I used to do dumb. Stuff like that. Let's yeah. drink a whole lot, then spend a whole lot of money, money for a concert. Right. Dummy, not anymore. Not a good idea. You no, know, I need to be nice and straight. So there you go. There's more things that you can turn to the guy next to you and say, "Did you know?" Shut up. There's a concert going on. This is only rock and roll.
1: That's this it. doesn't happen for classical or no. jazz or I mean, not even. No. it's
0: it's this is unbelievable. It only happens in no. rock. Right. Sure. Here's Johnny Cash. It's a backstage pass right here in Racksco.
1: Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. One night I had a backstage pass To a Willie Nelson show There were wackos and weirdos And dingbats and dodos And athletes and movie stars And David Allen Coe There was leather and lace And every minority race With a backstage pass To the Willie Nelson show Christopherson got an offer for a movie Promoters closed another deal or two show I wish you could have been there Well, maybe you were <laughs>
0: Right, finishing up talking about the arena we're done with that i've been saving this one because i think it was the one everyone was kind of waiting for me to do <laughs> the history of the electric guitar now you you play guitar you said yes. poorly do you yes. have an electric or do you have i acoustic? don't have an electric no you should get one they're yeah, wonderful I know, I know but playing acoustic all the time you've got the hand strength exactly so get yourself yep. a nice electric and the calluses and I'll, I'll tell you where to get a nice electric is at pawn shops Oh really? Really, I'm telling you, Good some time. of my best electrics have come from other people's great misfortune. That's you can get some very I nice electrics. When you hear the electric guitar in the history of it, you hear Les Paul invented the electric guitar. Didn't. <laughs> Leo Fender invented the electric guitar. Didn't. Here is the reason that most people believe those two invented it. Well, because Les Paul took his electric guitar to Gibson and said, you know, Please create this. Well, they laughed him out of the room. Mm. They had already had electric guitars. Gibson did for the longest time. The Leo Fender, uh, Stratocaster, Broadcaster, Telecaster, was the reason that Les Paul was even brought back in to Gibson. But see, all of these guys were... Long after the electric guitar was even created, guitars had to become amplified because they could not overpower the brass that surrounded them in big bands. Which makes sense. You can't hear a guitar. Right. Most of this comes from a book called The Electric Guitar and Illustrated Encyclopedia. So if your history out there differs from mine, I'm just giving you the source as to where I got this. The pickup. Itself was obviously created after the guitar. Two guys, George Bouchamp and Paul Barth, were working for the Rickenbacker Company in the United States. Ah, Rickenbacker. It culminated in 1931 with a lap guitar known as the frying pan. And by the way, I've held a frying pan. Uh, I have the actual, one of the actual that frying pans. Neat. When I went to Guitar Center in Los Angeles, I went to see the, the Wall of Fame or the Sidewalk of Fame out front mm-hmm. where famous people have put their handprints and yeah, such. Yeah, yeah. But inside, they have sort of a gallery of famous, famous guitars. Wow. And I told the guy I was a disc jockey in, in New Orleans and, and built this show up to be far more than it actually <laughs> is. And he said, well, come on down. We'll show you this stuff. And I knew about some of the guitars. And I asked him if he had a frying pan. And he did. That's cool. And God bless him, he took it out of the case and let me hold it. Did now, you play it? Oh, no. Okay, no, yeah, so you no. just sort of, right, right, right. Held it like right. a baby and then gave yeah. it back Got to it. him. But it had one of the original pieces. And it was a lap guitar because when guitars were first being amplified, you held it on your lap and played it sort of in a Hawaiian tone okay. back and forth. This all was sort of the first electric guitar. Gibson, Epiphone, and Rickenbacker all started putting this crude pickup that Bouchamp and Barth created into their hollow body arch tops. Ah. And the big seller, the Gibson ES 150, became sort of the first, I don't know how to put it, but amplified guitar, pickup guitar. Mm-hmm. There was only one problem. It was a hollow-body guitar, and anybody that sort of follows this stuff knows if you put a pickup in a hollow-body guitar, you have to account for the fact that the pickup picks up on both sides. Got it, yes. Thus, there is sound on both sides, Mm -hmm. and you know if you take a microphone and you put sounds on both sides, it feeds back. Right. So there was a massive feedback problem with both of these. What do you do? Now comes Les Paul and Leo fans. Hard bodies. Right, so let's start playing uh, something. You wanted to hear Stevie Ray Vaughn? You bet. She's my pride and joy. Sounds like this on Rascal. right, first break here on Rock School, and uh, we continue talking about the history of the electric guitar. Like we said, the ES-150, which was Gibson's main jazz guitar at the time, Charlie Christian was the guy that played it, He of the the one-note solos, they fed back. Right. If you kept them at a certain volume, they weren't so bad. Mm -hmm. But like anything else, you turn it up, a a microphone too close to an amplifier, you turn it up to a certain point, there's a tipping point, whoop, the feedback comes up. How was it fixed? Well, they knew, they, the guitar manufacturers, knew there was this concern, and they were attempting to fix it. Well, most people, and the years get mixed up, most people attribute the fix to Les Paul. Les Paul was playing one night, and he is a hell of a harmonicist, and Mm. a guy came up to him and said, I can hear you, I can hear your harmonica, I can't hear your guitar. Ah. So what he did is he took a 4 by 4 piece of wood, he attached a guitar neck to it, and took a, a pickup that he made out of an old telephone vocal part and attached it to it, went out with it, and people didn't like it at all. The next night he took the two wings of an old guitar attached it to it now the thing looked like a guitar and they thought it was great did it, it have the same sound exactly it was ah, the exact great. same thing that's right just the visual Yeah of exactly right. wanders into Gibson with this thing and says look what I've created they laughed him out of the room said get lost now he, he was he was somewhat popular at the time Soon after that, Leo Fender comes out with what's known as the Broadcaster. All right. It's it's really a Telecaster, but he gets into a legal battle with Gretsch drums. Gretsch oh. made drums, and they had a drum kit called the Broadcaster and said, mm, can't do that. Okay. He renames it the Telecaster. But Gretsch made guitars in the end, too, didn't they? They certainly did, yeah. but they made drums at the time. Uh, which is why you see pick guards that look like drum mm-hmm. pieces, because right. their drums were made out of the same stuff that their picks, ah. their pick guards were made out of. And see, it all comes together in yes, a big pink right. bow. Well, out comes the Telecaster, and out soon comes the Stratocaster, and all of the feedback problems are repaired because of the solid body. There's yeah. no back. You can't feedback through it. Right. And Gibson is getting killed. This little California company is Mm -hmm. killing them. Now Leo, um, I'm sorry, Les Paul, Paul, is now a huge performer, and they call him back. Uh, Okay. And they say, we would like to use you as an advertising man for this new body style, the Les Paul. So he had some input into okay, what the guitar yeah. was, but for the most part, Gibson invented the Les Paul. He simply lended his name to it. Right. So that's that's where that came from. Okay. He did not walk in with the Les Paul and said, here's the guitar, which is what a lot of people think. Here's the guitar. Why don't you manufacture it? Right. No, Gibson invented it. If you notice, it's okay. just a guitar with a cutaway. Yeah, 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 yeah. He said, here, you invent this. Where Leo, I'm sorry, Les Paul, had the most impact into it were the pickups, Okay. It was a different kind of pickup that Fender was using. Well, the Les Paul—they have four pickups too, don't they? As well, to... they technically have—they have two single pickups pushed right together. All right. But that's not what they used right off the bat. Okay. Let's take a break. I'll come back. I wasn't going to get into this, but now since you've offered it, uh, golly, do I want to talk about it's it? It's too much fun. That's right. Who uh, who are we saying hi to? Say hello to KLSU in Baton Rouge. Lovely. And uh, Radio Universidad Salamanca, Spain. Thanks for running the radio show. Back in a minute on Rock School. Give you a couple dates as we talk about uh, the electric guitar. It was 1952 when Gibson brings Les Paul back in to have him endorse the Gibson Les Paul. 49 is when the broadcaster came out so we're talking about a three year span that Fender really owns the entire market Yeah, and then Gibson realizes we're getting killed they bring Les Paul <laughs> back in it's two years after that that the Stratocaster comes out a year after that the Stratocaster is pictured on the front of the Buddy Holly and the Chirping Crickets LP Got it. and every guitarist in the world goes I gotta have That's that, the one. that physical guitar right there now you wanted to ask a question about the Rickenbacker yeah
1: I mean you mentioned Rickenbacker was one of the pioneers of this. And I remember, you know, in the 60s, John Lennon, he had that Rickenbacker. And Roger McGuinn was known for the Rickenbacker sound. It just doesn't seem to be there anymore. And it looks like Fender and Gibson have kind of... I mean, there's other ones, but they're still there. Yeah, the Rickenbacker is
0: a bouquet guitar. It really is. It's an expensive instrument, number one. Okay. It is... It's it's an extremely well-crafted instrument. But in the 1960s, the Beatles... Now, this is just the way I I remember it happening. The Beatles chose the Rickenbacker guitar because of one guitarist. It was George Harrison that chose the Rickenbacker guitar. And it was because of Chet Atkins and his endorsement of the Rickenbacker Country Gentleman. As in Chet Atkins, who used to play with uh, As in Les, Chet Atkins, uh,
1: Lester and Chester, I played Les
0: Paul. That's right. Well, there we go. As I understand, that's the reason they went after a Rickenbacker guitar, oh, wow. and it, it it had even more. Not that they were going after this at at the point in time that they played the Sullivan Show and all of that, right? But it even more gave over to that Mersey Beat sound because the the toaster pickups that mm. were in the in the Rickenbacker gave more of a jangly sound, yeah. and the Beatles were playing through Vox AC30s, which had even a more high-end jangly sound. I mean, the Beatles sounded like the Beatles because of the equipment they right, used yeah. as much as their writing.
1: Wow. So now so, we're getting into speakers, too. That's a whole other show, isn't we, it? We've already covered it. <laughs> okay. So it was back there a little while.
0: Right. But yeah, we, we talked about pickups, and I'll do this real quick, and then sure. we'll, get into, uh, we'll get into that and then move on to another topic. The original Les Pauls had what was known as soap bar pickups uh, with Elenco posts made out of aluminum, cobalt, and I don't remember what the third metal wow. was, but they were intensely strong magnets single coil, uh, single coil magnets and everywhere is uh, every bit as strong as a humbucking pickup. Obviously, they weren't humbuckers. And I've played through guitars that have these humbucking pickups. In fact, today, still a lot of metal guitarists will have a a soap bar pickup up at the bridge mm. because they are hellaciously strong pickups. Huh. Um, however, they don't have a humbucking uh, setup. And still, you can find people who will get a Les Paul Pull the humbuckers out and put these original soap bars wow. in there. So they were, you know, if you wanted a Les Paul, it was much fatter, a sound than a Stratocaster. It still is though. It is. It, it, yeah, it's built it's still, to still that yeah, way. Yeah, it is. It's a so great sound. That's a question. Sound. What do you want? So They're, exactly. Speaking of Rickenbackers, a guy who is known for his Rickenbacker. You mentioned the Beatles. You mentioned Roger McGuinn. Mm-hmm. Um, how about Peter Buck? Peter Buck. Oh, yeah, R.E.M. Plays yeah. nothing but Rick and Buck. Yeah, and plays them beautifully. Yep, Fall on Me. This is R.E.M. on Rock School.
1: There's a problem
0: Okay, bottom of the hour, and we have to stop talking about guitar history because I I literally could do an entire show. As a matter of fact, I have done an entire show. Go to the website, kslu.org, click on The Rock School, little logo on the right-hand side. Go to Episodes. There's everything we've done uh, here on Rock School. And you will find History of the Electric Guitar. And for an entire hour, just nothing but the history. But need to move on. Let's do 7 Days, 70 Seconds. Uh, let's do the names one more time. I'm Joe Burns. And Dan McCarthy. There you go. These are the dates, June 24th through June 30th. Something that happened on each one of these dates in history. I believe Dan has Monday. Go. I do. Uh, June 24th in 2003,
1: Gert Van der Graaff, age 37, is arrested and charged with stalking after. after. After almost a year of threatening letters and close calls near ABBA Agnetha Falskog. Mm. I can't believe you made me say Agnetha Falskog. Twice. 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 He
0: had been her boyfriend for two years but turned violent and went psycho soon after leading to a restraining order. Yeah. June 25th, 2013, Michael Jackson is rushed to Ronald Reagan Medical Center at UCLA where he's pronounced dead at 2.25 local time. It's later learned that the cause of death is a mixture of Demerol and Propofol administered by physician Conrad Murray. June 26, 2008, Total Guitar Magazine
1: voted Celine Dion's version of ACDC's You Shook Me All Night Long as the worst cover
0: of all time, as it should have been. As it should have been. June 27, 2013, following the death of Michael Jackson, iTunes reports that their top ten tracks contain eight Michael Jackson (laughs) tunes and their top 20 tracks contain 11 Michael Jackson tunes. June 28th,
1: 1969,
0: Crosby, Stills, and Nash released their first album. Right, and uh, I believe it's Crosby's head that later is released uh, and taken out and a horse is put there. I did not know and that. Have you ever seen that? No. The, uh, the re-release? That's yeah. really cute. June 29th, 1965, Stone's Charlie Watts buys a 16th century house that once belonged to the Archbishop of Canterbury. Something tells me... Non-religious things were going on while yeah. Charlie lived there. <laughs> and then finally June 30th, 1977, Marvel Comics releases two comic books based on the group Kiss, printed in real Kiss blood. Oh. They did. Do you believe that? Oh, yeah. They actually showed it on TV. The the group Kiss showed up in full Kabuki makeup, and they all had blood drawn, went over to the printing press where the red ink was, and then squirted the blood into the thing. Can you even imagine that being allowed That is rock and roll. Was it OSHA rules (laughs) or something would get in the way? All right. We're done with the guitar. Let's move on to... You go, you see a band, the guitarist is playing, he takes his foot and he stomps on something. The effect pedal, let's talk effect pedals. Very cool. The earliest effects were probably simple echo and reverb made by either going into a big giant room or putting the sound to a plate, literally a giant plate, say, 10 feet by 7 feet tall, the plate that was inside of the uh, recording studio where uh, Phil Spector used to play and used to record was said to be a monstrous thing. What you would do is you'd put sound to it, hook a pick up to the plate, the plate would vibrate Ah. and it would create reverb. So you would actually distort the real sound wave and pick it up, as opposed to distorting the electronic signal. Exactly that. Sure. Uh, Gibson and Fender began to make reverb and echo boxes that worked by running sound through huge transformers in the 1950s. Of course, you couldn't move this around. Gibson then began putting springs in their amplifiers. I had one of wow. these. Wow. Oh, it was really neat. That is neat. I had a, uh, it wasn't a Gibson amplifier, it was a Rollin amplifier, but it had a spring in it. And I found that if I hit the top of it, uh-huh. the spring would would create additional reverb. That's. And when my band played the ocean, if I would, you know... Increase the amount of it, the reverb would sound like waves coming Whoa. up. And the band would sort of stand there and watch me do this so it sounded like the waves were coming and then <laughs> and right into the song, which was, I guess, kind of neat. Once transistors were invented, you know, you didn't have to have tubes anymore, yep, yep, you yep. could digitally push the Change sound forward. The, the pedals started to come out. That was in 1962. The first transistorized guitar effect was in 1962, and it was called the Maestro Fuzz Tone. All it did was take the sound, double it, put it against the other sound, and it distorted it. Just that. Okay, Okay. where do you hear it? In the 1965 recording of the Rolling Stones, I can't get no satisfaction. Listen closely. When they get to the chorus... And Mick begins to sing, I can't get no. Listen real closely. Right before the chorus starts, you will hear. This is how poorly these things were made. You will hear the click of the fuzz box start. Once you hear it, you'll never be able to unhear it. Oh, man, I can't wait. You will hear the click of it start. Then the guitar will be fuzzed. And at the end of it, if you listen close enough, you'll hear it click off. I swear. I believe you. Once you hear it, you'll never unhear it. <laughs> Here's Mick and the boys. Can't get no satisfaction. Listen to the Maestro Fuzz Tone Pedal from 65 on Rockstar. There's a Stones on Rock School taking us into our second break, talking effects pedals, rack mounts, and such. Now, mm. do you would you rather a person on stage play with stomp boxes, those little pedals where you actually see them step on them with their feet, or would you rather that somebody off stage just start the effects for them? Oh no, I love having them do it. I, I like. So that. do I. I like it a lot. There's something that's wrong with that because I, I, it has happened now that the effects have almost all become rack mounted mm. and the person on stage doesn't have to think about it their roadie or some kind of guitar tech will turn on the effects when is required oh i didn't know that yeah, yeah i don't like that i'm not a fan of that either i mean I don't, I don't like that
1: a point of live music is to interpret it in a way and so that should be up to the performer he should decide okay now i
0: want this sound here, i agree or I to do that. So. yeah i i I hadn't seen Sticks Live. I saw them on uh, one of their early, early tours when Dennis DeUgg was still playing. But their their last tour, where they were playing both their Pieces of Eight and Grand Illusion mm. uh, albums, both the guitarists, Tommy Shaw and, and um, J.Y. Young, never had a stomp box on stage, uh. but all of their effects occurred. So blatantly, somebody yeah. off stage is turning on the effects when required. I don't know that that's quite correct. And They're good enough to do that. Tommy I, Shaw can do that. I agree. Guitars. I agree. Speaking of uh, rack, pa- uh, rack mounts and pedals and such, Warwick Electronics comes out with the first wah-wah pedal in 67. The octave effect comes out that year. Phase and flange comes out a little later on, attempting to create uh, an equal to the rotating Leslie speaker. Mm-kay. It's in the 1980s that rack mounts come out, and I think they're still popular, and a lot of people credit grunge with bringing stomp boxes back the reason for all of these effects and and i believe this is true every effect is simply attempting electronically to create something that went wrong in the studio <laughs> you think I, so i, I do oh. distortion is simply the overdriving of an amplifier
1: well i mean i, I think some people use these effects for musical purposes they do they try to get a certain sound out of
0: it. i think of a frank right. zappa as the type of person like a, a phaser yeah. a flange is a mistake right But I need that mistake to be able to be controlled. Uh, Right. A wah pedal is simply taking the tone knob and throwing it from bass to treble. Okay. And I need to be able to do that without wearing out the the knob on the amp. How can I do that without Mm. hurting the amplifier? The the power soak from Schultz-Rockman. An amplifier screams at a certain volume. Mm-hmm. Well, if you keep running an amp, yeah, at a yeah, volume, yeah. you'll destroy it. Right. So he allows you to pull back the volume mm-hmm. on it. So that's that's why mm-hmm. I think these things exist. So we'll go on to a next topic uh, after the break. So KSCL, Shreveport, Louisiana, they listen to us. Thank you so much. As does WBSD up in the fair town of Burlington, Wisconsin. That they do. Back in a minute, and we'll talk about. I got two topics left, and we'll see if we can't throw them both out before the end of the show. Wrap this thing up. Back in a minute on Rock School. All right, coming out of the break, let's go to a new topic. I only have two left here, and let's talk lighting. A friend of mine on campus stated you can pretty much do an entire show on one specific light when it comes to rock and roll. And I have a lot of notes here, but I'm going to try and just pare it all down Mm. into one shot. Most of what I got here comes from a lighting designer named Kevin Shaw. In the 1950s and 60s, rock shows were lit the same way... Any other show was lit. There were normally three color battens above. Right. Which, you know, you had three bars, sure. three different sets of colors, mm-hmm. boom, bring them down. The front of house lights, which were shown straight at the right. performers, and maybe a follow spot. Okay. You had a main performer. Right. Put a spot on them, follow them. What changed was the invention of what they call the PAR 64. The PAR light was invented in both 120 and 220 volt versions. Okay, so what? What did it do? It offered an extremely strong color, a bright light, and a distinct beam and created what was the hallmark of rock and roll. It was no longer that lights were lighting a space mm-hmm. individual lights were lighting individual things you could now take when a human being was standing on stage you could take these par lights were you know about the size of you know two fists right you could now point multiple lights at one person so the show was no longer just the people the show was the lights yeah. as much as the person Early lift systems were being used um, based on HVAC systems, oh, which geez. would lift these things up. Right. And not just bring them up, but while the show was going on, the lights would move. Mm-hmm. So so-and-so would be playing a, a solo, and the light would turn and twist and move. Got and it. they were early HVAC systems yeah. that they put these things together. Jeez. Gaffer's tape was literally just ducked tape and they would use it to attach (laughs) and move these things around. And in the 1970s, a company called Dulwich began welding together custom grids specifically for these PAR-64 cans and rigging the cans together using memory lighting desks made by a company called Aldermans. So what you could do was using a computer attach these cans to a system that would say, like this one, then like this one, then like this one, and it would begin to play. Later on in the 80s, a system was set up that would listen for specific frequencies. So, as you played, when the 3000 hertz frequency hit, the lights would change. So, symbols, there we go. Right, and and the lights would change. Uh, So, that's very clever. That's supremely quick. Yeah. There's a lot more to it. An entire show could be done on it. But if you want to say to somebody, you know, what's the light that changed rock and roll from just light of space to. The lights are part of the show. Mm-hmm. It's the Par 64, or what they call the Par King. That's pretty cool. There you, go. there you go. And when you're up on stage, you are living in the limelight. This is Rush on Rock School. Last break here on Rock School. Once again, thank you for sitting in. Dan McCarthy, our plasma physicist. Really appreciate it. No problem. Hope to have Beth back soon. Uh, I think so. I think next week she'll be back. Great. We have one more topic to wrap up this extended show. We uh, we did in the first show, we did, uh, I think it was trumpet. Mm-hmm. We then did saxophone in the second show. Now we have to wrap up the three-piece horn section of anything on stage. Trombone. You've never played trombone, have you? I've, not, I've mucked around with it, but not did really played it. So no. you played the sack butt? The what? About? The sackbutt. Okay, I didn't... <laughs> no, you didn't see that one coming? No, I didn't see that one coming. That was its original nickname when it came out in England, if that's where it was invented. I've... Nobody's really sure where the silly thing was invented. Hmm. Uh, it says here it might have roots in China somewhere in the 15th century. Then another person states that it might have been invented in the Flemish area of Burgundy in modern-day France in the 15th century. And other people say that there was an instrument called the butt that looks similar to it uh, invented in England somewhere around 1450. So I'm willing to go with the sack butt That theory. works for me. Yeah, we'll it does, that. Yeah. sackbutt theory ladies and gentlemen the uh, <laughs> the <laughs> instrument itself became popular around the 18th century and the reason is because it sounded more like vocal or was in the vocal range Uh, more than just about any other instrument at the time, and became extremely popular in church because when there was no one singing, the trombone could take over the vocal support for the sacred music in a church and continued into the mid-19th century doing that. I never imagined the trombone as a sacred instrument. In Uh, church?
1: In church, there we go. You think harps and organs, but not trombones.
0: When I think trombone, I think uh, specifically in church of the concept of putting that thing that you use to clean the toilet you know over top yeah, of it and mute. sounding like it's charlie called brown me. it's a mute blah, 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 blah. see you did play there trombone it's, i played trumpet that's how right. mute the trombone today comes in generally five ranges soprano alto tenor bass and contrabass uh, there are mm-hmm. also special instruments in terms of trombone piccolo sopranino uh, there's also other ones, but you have to have them specially made, and every single one of them has a slide. Some of them have keys, and yep. now you know everything you need to know about the trombone to bore the living heck out of other human beings. Which is the purpose of this show. <laughs> <That's> what, <laughs> At least when that's I'm here. what we do. When we set it up, that's our purpose. <laughs> Zappa always has a great horn section. Who is his main uh, trombonist? Bruce Fowler. Bruce Fowler. Amazing. And he is featured in the song I Am the Slime from Overnight Sensation. And that's going to wrap it up. Thanks once again. It's been a pleasure, Joe. I'm Joe Burns. And Dan McCarthy here for Beth West. You bet. Class is dismissed.